Hi, fantasy readers. This is Corinne Norton, your fellow book binger, and you are listening to the Finding Fantasy Reads podcast, where you can test out a new fantasy story every single week to find your next favorite author. This next story follows a royal guard on an unusual quest. It's written by Sarah K. L. Wilson, who is a USA Today bestselling author and has written almost 100 fantasy novels and novellas ranging from young adult to romantic and epic fantasy. She writes fantasy stories featuring practical heroines and heroes, as you'll see in today's story, in the most impractical circumstances. It's rumored that she has a main character vomiting in almost every single book, which I find hilarious because it's one of those real-life things that doesn't often make it into books. I'll let you keep listening to see if that rumor holds true for today's story, which is narrated by Peter Franson, host of Christian Geek Central. Stick around to the end or check out today's show notes to see where you can find more from both the author and the narrator, as well as information on this month's giveaway. Please enjoy Mayfly Dream by Sarah K.L. Wilson. Does any man wake knowing it will be the last day of his life? Does he tug on his boots with this grim thought in mind? take time to feel the splash of water upon his worn skin, perhaps for the first time in years, pause to listen to the songbird trill, his lilt a strange contrast to the deeds to come? Perhaps they do, but I did not. When I woke that morning, it was too hard, cold ground under a thin blanket, the scent of wood smoke still lingering. These bones don't rest as easy on hard ground as they once did. I'm not old by normal standards, but I'm old in the Royal Guard, 42. Already I must rely on experience and wisdom to make up for what I've lost in speed and the untamed confidence of the young. The recruits press me hard on the training ground, their enthusiasm a tide against which my sober days must match again and again. I can't leave this kind of life, though. I've been deeply immersed in it since I was a stripling myself, brought to Harrowwood Castle by my father, and given to the grounds like a fatted calf for the slaughter. I do not fault him for it, though I did at the time. How was I to know our estates would be overrun by the enemy only two years after I was dropped at the gates of the guards like an unwanted puppy? Somehow, my father had known. He had spared me an early death on the tip of a sword, the death he and my mother shared, along with his guards and friends and neighbors. My mouth still goes dry if I think too long on that. This war has been long and harrowing. It has winnowed us down to those hardest to break, those too twisted or too stubborn to just die. The knot of men surrounding me as we rise together, brewing a quick tea over stirred-up fires, eating our trail bread in quick snatches as we check over gear and snorting horses. These men all have stories that mirror mine. There are none here who have not lost family or homes, none who would have chosen this first as the shape their lives would take. Beside me, Gregor mutters a good morning to Grimm and twists again at that cord of leather around his neck. He has a single silver coin drilled and tied to it, the coin his father gave him when he sent him fleeing into the night as their home burned. 
I shake my head, my thoughts heavy this morning. I need to clear them for the task at hand. The king requested you by name, my old friend Siverin had said to me before we set out. He's Captain Siverin to everyone else. He leads this expedition and is as long in the royal guard as I am. He bid me tell you that he will see you granted a less trying post when it is complete. He had grunted at that. A less trying post? I do not want a less trying post than this. I was part of the guard that brought Queen Alanastra to our home in Harrowwood just over a year and a half ago. She'd been a young, blushing bride then, soft, bright-eyed, dressed too delicately for the cold and harshness of the journey. I'd given her my own cloak to warm her and watched like a hawk for her safety. We'd brought her, well and whole, to our king for their hasty marriage, and all held their breath for a month, two months, and on the third month, when the whispering began, we all whispered together, hoping. There's something about hoping together that binds a people even more than fearing together does. It bound us tight and firm, and sure as if we'd been lashed by cords. All my life we've battled the enemy, losing ground to them, losing resources and strength. But so has Beacondale, the kingdom to our west. Only Beacondale has ports, and that means weapons from outside, food from a world beyond, resources we do not have. And if our king could but get us an heir with their princess, his wife by arrangement, then our alliance would be complete and we will have allies at our backs for the first time since my boyhood. I do not think a single one of us went a day without thinking of it as our queen's dresses were let out and eventually she went into seclusion. And when, at last, a baby was declared born, healthy, a son, there was open weeping in the streets, the kind of weeping that comes with relief, not dancing, not feasting, we cannot feast on tight rations. We dare not dance where the enemy might see and find an opening, but we still weep. I did not weep, for I was not yet relieved. The birth was only the beginning. We'll take only one carriage and the rest of us will go mounted, Siverin had told me in the quiet of the armory as he laid out our orders to me. It was a strange place to choose to discuss such things but none would overhear us here in the bowels of the castle. He rubbed his bearded chin and thought, Swift and light are our orders. Draw no undue attention. We don't dare let them know what we have. We can't outrun them or outfight them, so we'd best keep from their eyes entirely. And what will we be guarding? I'd asked as I ran a cloth down my blade. I was ready. I was willing. No matter what the mission we'd been given, I'd been in the regular guard for three assaults directly against our Harrowdale walls before we'd pushed the invaders back, and my promotion to the royal guard a year later had not stolen my edge. The queen and her baby son, Severin had whispered, as if even here, even under earth and through double doors, even here, the news was too flammable to speak aloud. They must return to Beacondale both to complete the alliance safety and hope for our kingdoms, and to keep them safe. The king has heard whispers. Whispers? I'd pressed, and the tight lines of worry on his forehead grew more pronounced. We'd come up together through the guard, he a little faster than I, a little stronger, a little more nobly born, but still my friend, 
Perhaps, when it all boiled down to the bones, he was my only friend. He'd nodded in a stilted way I hadn't seen since the enemy, King Precator of Iceheim's fey warriors, were at the walls. A way that betrayed exactly how taxing he found this assignment. His jaw clenched tightly, and his own cloth on his sword slowed. The king fears betrayal from within. I'd shaken my head. There hadn't been a traitor since my father's time. Who would turn on their own, knowing there was no benefit to them? The other human countries had no reason to want us to fall. We were their only buffer against the madness of the enemy. We stood in this gap of land between human and fey. We few. We dwindling few. If we were gone, it would be Beacondale next, and then the rest of them, all the warm countries of the western coast, where food grew easily and human cities grew with it. Though the Fey were trickster folk, they made poor infiltrators. Not only were their looks too distinct, but they could not ape humans easily. We were too sedate for them, our appetites too controlled. He has laid out his suspicions to me, and I see no fault in his thinking, Severin whispered, and I'd shivered as he clapped me on the shoulder. You'll stand with me? Always, I'd answered without hesitation. I was loyal not only to him. I'd stand to defend the soft girl who had a heart like a lion, a heart so strong that she rode to a foreign land and bore a child to a foreign king to save two lands. And I'd defend her babe, an innocent who bore all our hopes in his small, chubby hands. Which was why I was here on a frosty morning, checking over our gear and the men peering into the woods around us as they moved from the deep olive of pre-dawn to the golden-edged emerald of full-blown dawn as it burst between the leaves of the great trees. The cry of a baby makes us all pause and look up, sharing between us a look that burns like fire. Hope was a painful thing, too beautiful to last, too sweet to resist. If man is a dream, then hope is the dreamer. If man is a breath, then hope is the sweet taste of it. We share it like a history, like the blanket of an inheritance. We share it like starving men feasting on a windfall. We all ache inside with it in the same way. It marks us more than uniforms could. I catch Siverin's eye, and he gives me a nod of greeting and the hand signal to form up just before he knocks gently on the carriage door. A carriage is no place for a queen or her child to sleep, and yet she has slept there without complaint. More reason to revere her. I duck my head in assent of the order and flick my fingers to Gregor and Grimm my two under-sergeants. They pop their heads up like growls, flicking their own hand signals. No yells or snapped orders for us. Those have been weaned from our ranks years ago. Yells, calls, these are reserved for battle when fingers and hands cannot be seen. Right now, quiet and secrecy are our friends. The last gear is stowed neatly, and we form up before Captain Siverin is finished speaking to those within the carriage. We jingle and squeak, but these sounds are faint. Shifter dances beneath me, eager to be off. I lay a calming hand on his neck, and he snorts a lovely, horsey snort. Horses care not where they go, only that they can move. I wish sometimes that I, too, could leave behind the cares and 
troubles of the life of a man and go with Shifter out across the forest floor or perhaps to the great plains of Beacondale to crop our food from stands of grass, to drink our fill from streams, and to run and run until there is nothing but the ground beneath, the horizon before, and the welcome of wind in our teeth. As if he can feel the arrow of my thoughts flying loose, he dances again, pushing forward out of formation, and my mayfly dream is snatched away from me as I dance him back into place. Siverin flicks a last finger signal at me and smiles the smile of a friend, that kind of smile that holds too many years of things to say to possibly say them all. And then he's off, trotting ahead. He'll lead the party, just behind the scouts. I am to take the rear just ahead of our vanguard scouts. I like that. I can watch over the queen and her child from nearby. A pale face peeks out the carriage window, and a pair of steady eyes catch mine. I smile my assurance at our queen, and duck my head to her in salute. She looks tense, her smile not as bright as it normally would be, her eyes not as clear. She's a lovely thing, too delicate, too beautiful for any of this terrible war, or her momentous role in it. I have little experience with women. They are not in the guard, nor are we encouraged to spend any time near them. I have grown to see why. Guards die often. So frequently, in fact, that any sweetheart or wife will be but a brief fling before the arms of death drag us away into a more permanent embrace. To love is to leave only wailing behind you. It is too cruel a thing to inflict upon those we are meant to keep safe. And though I've survived this life much longer than most, I'd never tarried into love, never felt the urge to hurt another to such a degree. But were I to love, I would love a woman like our queen, a woman stalwart before danger, a woman so generous she gave her whole self. We should reach the edge of Beacondale by evening at this hurried pace. There is a fortress there, Beacon East, they call it, once there we can relax to a degree. Beacondale will add their guard to ours as we bring our queen deeper into their kingdom to her father's house on the western border of the land. This spit of land we cross now is a narrow isthmus clad in deep forest that lies between our land of mountainous forests and the wide fertile plains of Beacondale. The isthmus is heavily forested and clad in mists made forever cold and damp by the weather patterns that swirl here, created by sea and mountain, or so the tutors of my youth declared. Whatever the cause of it, it makes me terribly nervous. Shifter, beneath me, jumps at the smallest sound, ears constantly twitching, as if he, too, feels vulnerable here in the grasping forest on his narrow spit of land between sea and sea. The only road lies in the very center of the isthmus, protection against storms from either side. But that protection brings its own trouble, for the forest here is thick, and I cannot see beyond a single layer of trees into the heavy undergrowth. Mossy fallen logs crisscross over what ground I can see, and thick young saplings with leaves that turn from green to silver when the wind stirs them up line the edges of the road, flourishing in this narrow line of sunlight. They shield the forest from us, and we from the forest. If an enemy lurks within, he will be impossible to see. 
I wish I could have scouts in the trees just beyond these shrouds, but the forest floor is too strewn with dead trees and tumbled boulders to be fit for horses. Men on foot cannot keep up with our punishing pace. We can only hope that the pace itself deters waylayers. Like biting flies, we must outrun them with our speed. We stop at noon for a brief break, just long enough for the queen and her maid to seek the privacy of the woods for a moment of relief, just long enough for the men to break out hard tack and cheese for a lunch. I am doubly nervous to be sitting still, and so is Siverin. His horse dances, and while he gives our men confident nods and a stalwart visage, I see in the tension of his shoulders that he is as wary as I. One glance at him and the men, and then my eyes are turned back to the woods behind and into the woods on either side, watching, watching, ever watching. Were this place not so vulnerable, both to weather and attack, it would surely have been claimed by some lord as a summer home. The forest is alive with birds and small game. They chitter in the trees and quarrel among themselves, diving, leaping, scrambling from tree to tree. The mature trees tower so high that if you raise your eyes to their tops, your gaze meets the heavens, their boles so thick that placed side on side, three could make a cabin wall. Their bark is gray and ridged, and their needles long and silky. The lower trees and bushes may be these silver-leaved things that trick the eyes, but the great pines are the pillars of heaven. As I grow older, I appreciate these things more that beauty is everywhere, that it is in the mundane, the breath of my horse, the feel of hot mush in my mouth, the scent of the earth when I step out in the frost, and it is also in the glory of what we take for granted, this great sky growing ever bluer as the fury of the one-eyed sun beats the mist away from the earth, these towering trees who have lived since before my grandfather's birth, and will live on long past when the grandchildren I never had would have died. If a man knows it is his last day, then maybe he appreciates it more. But if he does, he still can't appreciate it more than I. The baby cries when we begin to move again, and his cry startles the birds above us, causing them to leap into the woods in one single flight. There's something about the movement that feels like a portent, I do not like the way that feeling crawls in my belly. I watch the trees, and I think I see everything there is to see. I think I catalog every twitch and shadow. I am wrong. I'm looking to my right, peering through the trees when my horse screams, stumbling to the side. I see the arrow in his throat at the same moment that I hear the thunks of more arrows, these striking the queen's carriage like thrown rocks. Shifter falls, forelegs first, and in an act of athleticism I will feel tomorrow, I kick free of the stirrups and manage to leap from his back before his rear legs kick out and he rolls to the side. Blood fountains from the wound in his neck. I'm both pierced with sadness for him and grateful that the shot is clean. He's bled out almost before he knows he's in pain, his horsey eyes glassy when I spare him a glance. I can't spare another. They're upon us immediately. My breath comes in huffs. A quick assessment shows us in a ring around the carriage, some stragglers forming up, our scouts missing. No orders to give. Each man knows his place. 
my sword is out, and I'm moving to place myself between the enemy and my queen before I have even an inkling of a count on our opponents. There are too many rushing in from the trees. They mimic a spilled anthill. I swallow down a searing thought. Even if we strike down three to every one of theirs, we are too few. The attacker nearest me leaps straight out of one of those silver-leaved bushes. His flashing sword inches from my neck even as I dodge. The blade sinks into the flesh of my left shoulder, and I feel the weakness left behind more acutely than the pain. He severed something. I have no time to see what. The clash of battle is all around me, a fog of chaos and screams. I hear Siverin cry, To me! To me! but I'm not able to do more than step smartly to the side to dodge a blow from a second attacker as I plunge my sword into the belly of the first. We're loud, as we only are in battle. Grunts and cries, barked orders to draw in closer to the carriage. Another horse screams from somewhere, the sound of blade on hand. Sights and sounds and smells coming in too fast to tabulate. I must focus it all down to just what is close to me. There are no other royal guards within my sight, only the gray-clad bodies of our enemies. In my own private world of bare survival, the huff of my breath and the sound of steel hitting mine are loud. The sensation of those strikes rippling through my muscles and of the pain slashing through my shoulder keep me sharp. I focus on breathing, on moving, on staying in the moment so I do not miss a strike or parry. I should be giving orders to the men under my charge, but I can't see them. I'm too much in the thick of it to see more than the man in front of me and those on either side. I would not know what to order them, nor can I beg my enemies to wait while I discover it. I'm relieved when I hear a tight order from Siverin to hold ground. I'll do my best to obey. In accounts of battles the scribes write down, the events seem to draw out to be as long as hours or days. With so much time seeming to be accounted for, we can go over them again and again and look for ways to have improved upon them. In actual life, battles are very short, very fast, chaotic storms of violence and death. If by skill and luck you make it out at all, it is a small wonder. I am buried in the chaos like everyone else. I see flashes of steel and grimaces from my pale enemies. I feel the heavy blows of the strikes I parry, smell death beneath my feet and all around me, hear my own breath sawing in my lungs, my own pulse hammering in my ears. I move as if to strike the man ahead of me, and as his sword comes up in a defensive posture, I slide the strike into an attack on the enemy to my left instead, slipping my sword into the gap between defense and armor and right into the man's side over his hip bone. His scream is one of the dying. I know it well. I have no time to feel anything, not pity nor triumph. I have practiced this maneuver for a moment just like this, drilled and drilled until I can do it without thought. I do it now, ripping my blade from the belly of one man to spin and pin it into the man on my other side. He didn't expect me to strike so low. His defense was high, and now I've ripped through his belly into the vulnerable places. 
I would not want to die as he is dying now, with screams on his lips and his arms trying to hold himself together. I would feel pity for him, most certainly, but I dare not spare it. The third man is already upon me, and it takes all the strength of my shaking arms to turn his charge into a toss over my back. I spin as soon as it's accomplished and finally get my first look at how the rest are faring. That glance steals my heart and breath in one sharp blow. There is not a horse standing except, perhaps, those who have run. Even the carriage horses are dying, scrambling in their harnesses against the betrayal of bodies too broken to survive. My fellow guards are littered on the forest road all around me. There's Grim, cold and pale, Manish, who loved to dance, taken by an arrow through the eye, Haliva, the solemn, who never smiled even once. He smiles now, but with his neck. Their deaths are exactly as gory and horrible as the deaths of our enemies, as the deaths of my family and friends so many years ago. I must not dwell. There are knots of conflict still. I see Gregor locked in a deadly dance with two fey, his face tight with intensity. There is no sign of Siverin, no barked orders. He's dead. If he were not, he would be leading us. That makes the leadership mine. I must find our queen. I stumble toward the carriage. My shoulder is not functioning well, and there's a pain in my belly I hadn't noticed before. I look down and see an arrow shaft broken off and caught in my right side above the hip and a little further toward the center. It's a deadly wound. I dare not mind it yet. A fey warrior is hunched over something on the ground by the open carriage door. He's wounded, but that is not what worries me. The queen's maid is hanging backward out the door of the carriage, her eyes glassed over and a dagger still stuck in her neck. Like Shifter, she died fast. A small mercy. But behind her, the carriage is silent. There are no troubled cries or the quiet sounds of a mother comforting a frightened child. I move faster, heart in my throat, all pain forgotten in my panic. It's the laugh that arrests me, twisting my guts. The hunched fey warrior is laughing as he lifts a golden locket up in his hand, a trophy. My heart is ice. That locket is my queen's. I saw it first when I rode with the guard that delivered her to our lands. Saw it when worn by a maiden bride. Saw it again on the neck of my queen when she peeked out the window at me this morning. She's near. I move fast and sure, swiping the warrior's head from his neck with a blow that takes all the power my shaking limbs have left. I underestimate my wounds. I only realize it when I keep spinning even after my strike is complete, twisted by the momentum, and unable to stop as it drives me into a spinning fall and I crash to the ground. I try to force myself up again, but the world turns dark and I lose my mind to the depths. I wake to gut-wrenching pain, try to vomit, and only dry heave. My head is spinning, my mouth is dry. I open my eyes. Above me, the needles in the tall trees dance, and the silver-backed leaves rustle. They sing to me of peace. They call to me to dance with them. Come, they say, leave this agonized shell and escape with us. Come. My mind wanders toward them and falls feebly back. 
I feel the cool of wind brushing over my sweaty brow. My hands drift down to where the pain is worst, and they find the stub of an arrow above my hip. For a moment, my heart speeds, and panic seizes me as it all comes flooding back. The battle, the wound, the enemy must still surround us. And yet, silence reigns. I hear nothing, no cries, no whispers, not even the call of a bird, which must mean I have not been lying here long. The birds will come when it has been long. They will want to feast. Silence is the worst thing my ears could find, because silence means my friends, my brothers in arms, are all dead around me. But silence also means the enemy is not close by. Perhaps they have left, or perhaps they have merely withdrawn. Were I less gravely wounded, I could, perhaps, wait them out, lie on this forest path and watch the wind and the pine needles, and wait until it was safe to creep away. Even now, my best bet is to crawl away, hide in the undergrowth, and try to wait out any movements my enemy might make before slowly making my way to safety and to the kind hands who might tend my wound. I have a chance, slim though it may be. If I hide well and I am not found, if I go slowly and carefully so I do not pull on this arrow too hard, if I find someone who can help before it festers, I may yet survive this. But if I get up and run now, if I move too fast or try to lift so much as a sword, I will certainly not live to see another dawn. I have seen these wounds before. I know well what paths lay before me. That's what I'll do then. I'll hide. I'll go slow. I'll need water and a cloth I can use to wrap round the wound. I dare not remove the arrow. With a plan in mind, I turn my head and try to push up. Two things hit me like double blows. First, the weakness in my left arm where the sword slash has cut through muscle. A glance at it tells me it is still bleeding sluggishly. Second, the corpses around me. My enemies, nameless dead. My friends, each with a name I know. A history that matters. A future that will never be. I want to sob, but I do not dare. I must save my energy. I must not pull on the wound. My eyes stray to the man I saw last, the one I killed with my sword. His corpse lies angled over the skirts of the queen. Beautiful Alanastra is still lovely in death, her pale face paler still, her dark hair spread out around it like the roots of a tree, her eyes closed in death. The first time I laid eyes on her, I was helping her into a carriage to deliver her to her royal groom. I looked on her and loved her on sight. Who could not love such a one? Innocent, kind, giving. She had been the best of humanity. Now I witness her end, the extinction of those things. Gone. She is gone, and her future is gone with her. I stumble a step forward. It takes every ounce of my strength to keep to my feet. The emotion is so great. Beside her, clove almost in two, is my friend Siverin. Faithful in death, he is so close to his charge that he could only have died defending her to the end. Never again will we two share a blanket back to back out on mission. Never again will we spar on the grounds or sit companionably around a fire to tell tales and oil armor. 
Were I not so close to joining him, his loss would be unbearable. Almost I fall to my knees at the sight of them, almost. But news of this must be delivered, and to deliver it I must live. I suck in a breath and nearly vomit again. I must go slowly. I must take care in what I do next. I take the water skin from Siverin's belt, and I cut cloth from a fey cloak to tie up my arm and wad around the arrowhead in my side. Pull the arrow, and I'll die here with them. I must leave it where it is. A mewling sound arrests me as I cinch the last knot, swaying on my feet. It's the first sound in the silence of the dead. I look up, eyes smarting at the idea of animals and birds arriving, at them ruining the faces I once gathered with around meals and fires. But no, the sound is right here. It erupts into a soft cry, and realization hits me like a hammer. My heart races, making both my wounds spurt blood. The baby prince. He is here somewhere, not in his mother's empty arms, not in the arms of the maid hanging backward out the carriage door. I follow the cries to the carriage, stumbling over fallen weapons and fallen men and fay. I have not the strength to lift the maid free from her awkward resting place, but I must climb over her. I do it with care, and I am gasping with pain and weakness by the time I enter the shaded carriage. The cry is still small, but when I lift the lid from the chest to one side, I am hit with the force of it. Within, in a nest of blankets, is the tiny prince, sitting up, eyes wide with fear, flushed pink with his wails. Fear shoots through me, too. Not for me, no, but for the child. The enemy may still be near, and if they hear him, they will come and kill him. I swallow and reach for him, but he is too far gone in panic to be settled easily by unfamiliar hands. He pulls away from me, thrashing his limbs and tumbling back into his nest of blankets. I am not too good with children. I have not held an infant before this. Shh, I coo to him. Shh. This changes everything. I swallow and remember my throat is dry. Shh. I offer, and I reach for him, trying to ignore the rolling, visceral pain the effort causes as I lift the tiny boy into my arms. He sobs there, quivering, but he, too, is exhausted, alone, and afraid. After a moment, he stops fighting, descending instead into snotty, pitiful sobs. It is not cold now, but it will be. I try to bear that in mind as I gather up his nest and wrap it awkwardly around him, forming a rough sling to carry him on my left side. I dare not knock the arrow stub sticking out of my torso. My wounded arm can support him, though, even if it is not strong. I will not be able to fight. I slump back against the carriage bench, fighting for breath. The struggle to free the baby from the chest has sapped me of strength. I will not be able to run, either. But I can walk, and I must walk us to safety. Nausea grips me for a moment, and I do not know if it is my injury or my thirst or my understanding that in choosing to bear this baby to safety, if indeed I manage it at all, I am choosing to spend the last hours of my life, carrying a burden, being forced to move without rest, these things will not only sap all my strength, but they will also pull on the arrow, 
They will make my wound worse and make me bleed out, slow or fast, hopefully slowly, if I am to succeed. And if I will give the last of my life to this, then I must succeed. I fight back the nausea. I fight back the uncertainty. The woods call to me still, offer me peace, and in my arms, slowly calming to snuffling gulps of air, this tiny child calls to me too, begs me to spend my last hours on this deadly gamble, a gamble for his life. He has his mother's eyes, I think. He is warm and alive in my arms, and he looks up at me with nothing to offer but his trust. I give him a little water and then settle him in his sling. Shh, I whisper. I have you. You can sleep. There is no decision here at all. It's only after I've gathered a tiny bit of food from the carriage and found a spare cloak to pull over both of us, only after I've kept his little face hidden against my breast as I crept my way between the corpses of my friends, my foes, and our horses, only once I've slipped into the thick, tumbled woods of the isthmus that I realize there's another good reason to save this child. Without him, there is no alliance. There is no peace between nations. He's important. He means the safety and lives of thousands. But it wasn't that I was thinking of when I clasped him to my breast and made my choices. I feel comforted to know I am not cold of heart, to know that were he a peasant child, the child of the poor dead maid, still I would have made this choice. My life for his. My future for his. It's maybe an hour later when we must stop. Stopping is harder than going. Once my feverish legs start, they seem able to keep going, but stopping takes thought, and thought is growing harder. Even so, the child needs to eat. I don't know what it eats, whether he is still on mother's milk or whatever infants require. I mush up a little trail bread with water between my fingers and slip him tiny bits of it. He sucks on it, seeming content, his tiny fat hands reaching to tug on my ears and face. I must keep his sling high so it does not rub on the arrow shaft, and this means he has full access to my face. I offer him a little water as well. His grave, solemn eyes are wide now that he is calm. It may be my imagination that he forgives me for making a poor nursemaid. It is not my imagination that this warm, vulnerable bundle grows more precious with each passing minute. I cannot help when my face folds into a smile for him. I suppose if this is the end, a few smiles cannot hurt. Can I not breathe in joy along with the pain? A little mirth in the midst of a steady diet of sorrow? I creep through the forest, shielding him with my injured left arm. I can no longer feel the wound in it, which cannot be a good sign, but it does serve as bulwark for him against the scraping branches and twigs of the forest. I dare not take the road. I do not know how many of our attackers yet live, and if they might find our trail and choose to follow. Weak as I am, disguising our path has been difficult. I stumble often, though, thank God, I do not fall. I leave marks from clumsy feet and hands made heavy by pain. I brought no weapon and no burden beyond the child, the water, and the child's wrappings. Even so, 
My burden feels greater than when I once carried full armor, weaponry, and a pack into battle. It's late afternoon when we reach a point where the isthmus is so narrow that the road passes with ocean on either side, and barely a strip of trees growing only on the southern side of the road. I hold the young prince in my arms as he makes his baby sounds softly in my ear. He seems content enough as he watches the swaying trees. I strain my ears for any sound, and at last I pick one out. It's a matter of moments to scramble across the road to the northern side and peer out at the ocean from behind the thick bole of a tree. Down the coast, back towards where we were waylaid, there are three large fishing boats. They hold perhaps a dozen or so men, or a crew of five and their catch, when they aren't employed at raiding. I spot humans in the stern, hands on tillers, the owners of the boats, traitors to their own kind, our betrayers. And there in the boats are the remains of the raiding party dressed in their drab greys. They are ragged and slumped, and though that ought to bring me joy, it leaves me worried, because if I were that party, I would have packed my wounded and exhausted into those boats and gone back with the healthy to search the area on foot for survivors. That those fey look so worn suggests their commander thinks like me, and before long he will spot my trail and follow. Perhaps he is only moments behind me. I swallow fear and hug the child close. He has no name yet. His name was to be granted in the home of his grandfather, a tradition of Alanastra's people. If she had a particular name she called him privately, I do not know it. But I have taken to calling him Little Son. He is dark of hair and eye, but he is like the sun in the sky to me right now. My last day. My last purpose. I almost feel stronger with the thought. Quiet now, son, I whisper to him. This crossing is dire. It feels right to speak to him, even if they are words he cannot understand. The sun sinks as we slip toward the road, the beams a sulky orange, shadows long and grasping. We must cross this length with nothing to hide us from any following or any ahead. I take it at a jog, mindful of the danger to my wound, but uncertain how else to cross so much open space quickly. We're almost to the end of it when I hear the cry from behind us. We've been seen. Hold fast, little son, I whisper to the child. He is wide-eyed, and his tiny hand holds my collar tight. I can barely stand his warm trust. It is breaking me bit by bit. I must not fail him, and yet I am failing. I feel the weakness in my legs, the quiver in my limbs as I speed to a run. I must get to where the forest thickens, where hiding is possible. I can hear them behind me. Faint voices calling one to another, but I do not look back. Even a second of distraction could cost me. We fly, we too. If ever I have run in my life, it is now. I leave no scrap of energy untapped, no tiny burst of speed unused. It all must be fed to the flame, used up in this, my last day. We make it to where the isthmus widens into the land of Beacondale, and my heart soars as the land widens on either side of the road, but I have rejoiced too soon. The trees here are spaced more widely than they were before, and while there are more of the low silver-leafed bushes, they are also spread out farther. There is no adequate place to hide. I look down at my small burden, 
and find he has fallen asleep, rocked by the sway of my step, the light feather of his baby eyelashes, the soft pout of his little lips, the roundness of his cheeks. They are the last things I see well as the light begins to fade around me. It is dusk, I tell myself, and yet I worry it may be more than that, that my strength indeed is failing me, and with it, my sight. I hurry from the road, loping now through the open forest. This new forest calls to me even as the last did. Lie down, it says, find your peace here among our branches, breathe your last with us. I ignore the call, and run harder. I will run myself to death like this even if I know this is not good for my wound. The blood trail I am leaving could be followed by a child. My only hope is that I will not die too soon, that I will reach the gates of Beacon East before my body fails and leaves little son alone and without arms to hold or soft whispers to soothe him. He has been so brave. He has been so quiet here in my arms. He deserves so much more than I can give. Behind me, by the road, I hear voices lift. They have noticed I am no longer on the road before them. They search for my trail, but we both know I cannot stray too far from the road. I must follow it, even as they must follow me like hounds to the chase. Some burst of strength must swell in me. Perhaps God himself lends wings to the dying. I do not know. I know only that my feet grow swifter, my wounded arm stronger. I clutch little sun and fly fast as the forest fades to fields containing hay tented in neat stacks. I jog from stack to stack, watching my back, watching my path, desperately seeking the fortress. I do not know how to elude my chasers or why they have not caught me yet. Surely tracking one wounded man is no hardship for them. Surely they will find me and kill me long before I can reach safety. But when the moon rises high and round, I see the outline of the fortress ahead, and my heart soars with this one last dream, that I will make it in time, that strong arms will take my precious burden from me and defend him long past my last moment. It is a mayfly dream. It cannot last, and yet I bravely dream it. I pause behind a haystack trying to catch my breath. I taste blood whether because I've run as never before, or because this is my death rattle, I do not know. I know only that the next section of land from here to Beacon East is empty. No haystacks rise high for shelter. No trees or bushes dot the ground. The master of this fortress is no fool. He will not give his enemies places to hide near his defenses. But this also gives me no place to tuck away from eyes. In a moment I will run again, and when I do, I will not be able to stop until I reach safety. I lean in one last time, kiss little son's soft brow, and cuddle him to me. A goodbye, a prayer of hope, a last offering of kindness. They all wrap into one soundless sob that I allow myself as I hug him tight. God grant he finds safety. God grant he makes it to those friends beyond the walls. I'm so focused on the hope that I do not hear the creep of my pursuer until the last moment. The scrape of metal on leather alerts me, and I twist to the side just in time to avoid the thrusting blade. Something in my belly twists in agony at the movement. The arrow. I turn to run, and find I am surrounded, 
two men, one on either side, and the haystack on the other. There will be no flight. They circle as dogs circle a wounded bird. It is an apt picture, though this bird carries in his arms the sun itself. I have no weapon to fight, not even a belt knife. I left all else behind. Even the water skin is almost empty now. A twinge of pain in my right side reminds me that I am not entirely weaponless, and with a burst of insight, I realize what I might do. I take a deep breath, and when the first of them lunges for me, I twist, shielding little son as I put my right side between him and the enemy while ripping the arrow from my own belly with my right hand, spinning again and plunging it into the neck of my opponent. That this worked, that it did not kill me immediately, or that my aim did not fail, or my arm find itself too weak, is a miracle, or a series of miracles, or perhaps a last gift to the dying. Whatever it is, I am grateful. I snatch my enemy's weapon and focus all my heart and love on the tiny child, and all the energy and violence left in my soul into movement as I lunge and strike at the other man. I score a hit, not a mortal one, but enough of one that he turns and runs, breath sawing in his lungs as if more from fear than pain. I do not understand it, but I have no time for puzzles. The arrow is out now. I have minutes at most. I drop the weapon and tear across the empty ground, begging my legs to bear me before my blood runs out, begging my shaking hands to hold my burden tight. He awakens, and his little ripping cries tear out, startled and afraid. You're safe, I gasp as I sprint towards the walls. Safe, little son, safe. Be at peace. His cries do not fade. He is strong, so strong. I almost tear up when I reach the gates of Beacon East, and my hand thunders its knock on the postern. It seems a very long time before I hear the creak of a hinge, a long enough time for me to kiss my wailing charge's head and feel my knees give out. I am careful to collapse with my back against the wall, sliding down so that little son is on my sunken chest, safe. My vision has left me when at last there are voices, and my hearing fades next until they are only a murmur. Hands lift the weight from my chest, and I try to reach to take it back, but my hands do not respond. My limbs take no orders from me. I have spent them all down to the end, exactly as I wished. Even my thoughts flee me, scattered like pollen in spring, drifting on the wind. I gasp. I am gone. I wake to a murmur and the soft cry of a babe. And this is not right, for I have already lived my last day, my last moments all spent out exactly as I wished them to be. I feel confusion first, and then a distinct lack of pain. I open my eyes and sit up with force, panic slicing through me. Something is terribly wrong. My last day has not been taken, my last moments not spent. Does this mean my little son is not safe after all? Easy, a voice barks, not unkindly. Easy now. You are almost dead. You can't be throwing yourself around like a log for the fire. He comes into view, an older man, bearded, well-dressed. A healer of sorts, perhaps? Little son, I gasp. 
He shakes his head, confused now, too. But I am blinking back tears of panic. Where is he? Is he not safe? The baby prince, I say, and I hear the desperation in my own voice before the comprehension is seen on his face. His features soften. Ah, safe. Well, see for yourself, he says, moving to the side. My daughter is quite taken with him. From behind him, a young woman steps out, round-faced, young. She looks so much like Queen Alanastra. My voice is a reverent gasp. She shakes her lovely head, brow furrowed. Her eyes are red-rimmed. Is my sister... She must be dead? For you have been found carrying a child wrapped in her wedding gown. Was that what the baby's nest had been made of? I had not noticed, nor do I notice much now except for him, my little son, smiling at me from the arms of the girl. I feel my face melting, collapsing, tears clouding my eyes as relief fills me. He's safe then, I gasp, lower lip trembling as it has not since my childhood. Safe in my courts, the old man says, and I look at him in confusion before I realize he is the king of Beacondale himself. His daughter, the princess holding my little son, is Alanastra's sister. I am eager to hear your tale in full. There's a sadness in his eyes as he says that. He has lost a daughter. I duck my head in shared sadness, and he is certainly owed explanations, but I must know. You will keep him safe here? The prince? No, the king says, and my heart falls. I open my mouth to protest, but he speaks over me. You will. I shake my head. I fear I cannot. You have more pressing duties, he asks, lifting an eyebrow. I would desire nothing more, majesty, but... I spread my hands wide in helplessness and then stop. My left arm. I am wearing nothing but blankets, and as I look at my shoulder, all I see where there was a deep wound before is a long, white scar. Without thinking of modesty, I pull the blankets down and look to where surely a festering gut wound must be, and I do not know what to do when all I see is a glass-smooth scar where the arrow was. I look up, lips parted in shock. The secret of Beacondale, now your secret too, the king says and for the first time I see his full authority behind his eyes. Our touch heals. You did this? I gasp. No, he says, and his eyes twinkle. You bore in your arms our heir, the next gifted with our magic. How else would you have run so far and fast and not bled out? And I look now in awe at little son again. I had thought I was saving him. In the end... He had saved me, too. "'Are your duties still more pressing?' the king asks. "'I promised I would give him every moment I had left,' I say simply, smiling now in the wonder of it and meeting those laughing baby eyes with mine. I seem to have more of them now, and all are for his service.'" I hope you enjoyed listening to Mayfly Dream by Sarah K.L. Wilson, narrated by Peter Franson of Christian Geek Central. If you want to read more from Sarah, go to sarahklwilson.com to find more of her books. 
I'll also be sure to have that link for you in the show notes. In fact, today is the release day for her newest novel of Deeds Most Valiant, where 11 paladins walk into a monastery, but only one knows it's a trap. I pre-ordered my copy, so I will be staying up late tonight to read that. If you enjoyed listening to Pater's performance of the story, you might also enjoy listening to his podcast, where he digs deep into movie and video game reviews for Christians. You can find out more info at christiangeekcentral.com. Last but not least, don't forget to enter this month's giveaway with a fantastic set of books, including a paperback copy of Sarah's brand new book of Deeds Most Valiant. I have one more episode for you today, so stay tuned. Thank you all for listening, and happy reading.